everyone. Uh, my name is Alexa Goldfarb. I'm a second year pediatric resident. Thank you for selecting me to present my research on methotrexate for children newly diagnosed with Crohn's disease. I would also like to thank my research mentors, Dr. Himes and Dr. Baldwin. I have no financial disclosures to report. Crohn's disease is a chronic inflammatory disorder of the GI tract and accounts for the majority of cases of pediatric IBD. Treatment of active Crohn's disease typically includes induction therapy to induce remission, followed by maintenance therapy to maintain remission. The old goal of treatment was to achieve clinical remission, but the new goal of treatment is to achieve mucosal healing, which is defined as the absence of mucosal ulcerations and inflammatory lesions. In the United States, glucocorticoids are often used as the initial treatment for induction. Although exclusive enteral nutrition, aminosalicylates and anti-TNF antibodies can also be used. If remission is achieved, the patient can then be transitioned to a maintenance regimen. Medications used for maintenance include aminosalicylates, thiopurines, methotrexate, and anti-TNF antibodies, such as infliximab. In the past, thiopurines have been the first choice agents for maintaining remission in children with Crohn's disease. Methotrexate has mostly been used as a second line agent for patients who do not respond to thiopurines. However, over the years, an increased risk of hepatosplenic T-cell lymphoma has been reported among patients receiving thiopurines. So methotrexate has increasingly been used as a first line maintenance therapy for pediatric Crohn's disease but there is not much data on the long-term outcomes and mucosal healing with this approach. So the purpose of this study was to describe outcomes following the use of methotrexate as primary maintenance therapy after induction in newly diagnosed children with Crohn's disease. This study was a retrospective single center cohort study. We performed a retrospective chart review of patients newly diagnosed with Crohn's disease between January 1st, 2010 and May 1st, 2017, who had methotrexate started as their first maintenance therapy. Inclusion criteria also included being 18 years or younger at diagnosis, having non-stricturing, non-penetrating disease, having methotrexate started within 12 weeks of diagnosis, and having follow-up of at least 12 months. Patients who were excluded from our chart review were those who were initially treated with anti-TNF antibodies or thiopurines as their primary maintenance therapy. Patients with stricturing disease as well as penetrating disease were also excluded from our study. <coughs> Data collected included patient demographics, disease location using Paris classification, disease severity using PCDAI scores, imaging and scope findings, methotrexate root, and the dose of methotrexate prescribed. Our primary outcome was disease activity at one year following diagnosis, which we assessed using PCDAI scores. PCDAI stands for Pediatric Crohn's Disease Activity Index. This is a validated instrument for measuring disease activity in pediatric Crohn's disease. Disease activity is determined by a numerical score based on clinical symptoms as well as physical and lab findings. The score can range from zero to 100, 
with higher scores meeting more active or severe disease. Secondary outcomes for the use of steroids, aminosalicylates, thiopurines, or anti-TNF antibodies within 12 months, the need for surgery within 12 months, and mucosal healing at 12 months. Mucosal healing was defined as no evidence of inflammation or ulceration on the patient's endoscopy report or imaging report, which was either an MRI or CT. In total, 54 patients met our inclusion criteria. The majority of our sample was male. The mean age of our sample was 12.1 years with a range of seven to 17 years. The majority of patients had disease in both their small and large bowel, and the mean PCDAI score at the start of methotrexate was 15.5 with a range of zero to 40. Our clinical outcomes are shown in this figure. Nine of 54 patients were classified as early failures, meaning they were transitioned to infliximab within the first four months of starting methotrexate. The remaining 45 patients continued on methotrexate for more than four months. Of these patients, 12 were transitioned to infliximab between four and 12 months of starting methotrexate. The remaining 33 patients stayed on methotrexate for 12 months or longer. Of these 33 patients, 15 had mucosal healing seen on endoscopy and or imaging after 12 months of methotrexate therapy. The remaining 18 did not have mucosal healing on endoscopy and or imaging, although their symptoms were controlled clinically as evidenced by their low PCDAI scores. When comparing the clinical and demographic features, of the early failure patients to those who stayed on methotrexate, we found no difference between the two groups in terms of sex, age, disease location, and initial PCDAI score when methotrexate was started. When comparing the clinical and demographic features of patients who had mucosal healing with methotrexate to those who just had a clinical response with methotrexate, we again found no difference between the two groups in terms of age, sex, disease location, and initial PCDAI score when methotrexate was started. Overall, 59% of the enrolled subjects had inactive disease by PCDAI, and 27% had mucosal healing after 12 months on methotrexate as primary maintenance therapy. Methotrexate was generally well-tolerated, and only one patient discontinued methotrexate because of side effects. We recognize that our study had a small sample size and that provider selection may have biased the outcomes by choosing a less ill population for methotrexate therapy. <coughs> Based on our results, we can conclude that mucosal healing is achievable with methotrexate as initial maintenance therapy for children newly diagnosed with Crohn's disease. The majority of subjects in our study had inactive disease after 12 months of methotrexate with minimal toxicity. Methotrexate should therefore be considered as first-line maintenance therapy in pediatric Crohn's disease. However, further research is needed to identify which patients would most benefit from methotrexate as initial maintenance therapy in terms of demographic and clinical features. We were hoping to find predictive factors to help identify which patients would do better with methotrexate 
but our sample size was too small to achieve this. Thank you. Questions? So thanks, uh, nice, nice work. Um, mm -hmm. Question I have is, is how is this different from standard of care? Right? So can you uh, can you define this uh, um, as opposed to you know what was done before, and based on your study, what could be done differently in the future? We need the mic. Get the microphones. Can I pass that question to my mentor, Dr. Baldwin? Uh -huh. She's right there. We did. Um, we found that one patient had elevated uh, liver enzymes and they had to stop methotrexate because of that, but all other patients do not really have elevated liver enzymes. Uh, we followed that as well. We didn't really find anything significant, but again, our sample size was very small. Okay. Uh, before you run off, um, Alexa, I'd like to give you your certificate, and I'm told there's a uh, an award in there for a certain amount. Which I can't I can't say what it is. No, I'm just <laughs> Hopefully, it's an impressive luck. You was Thank great you talk. So um, in the past, has been a photographer, but I don't know if we have. At the end. No? At the end. Oh, okay. You said you can't stay. Okay, she's going to have to leave. Okay. Well, anyway, thank you very much. Thank Great you. talk. Good luck to you. Thank you. Now for my better half, Dr. Flores. So our next speaker is going to be Dr. Preena Patel. Her talk is entitled Point of Care Influenza Testing in Emergency Department. Her co-authors are Drs. Smith and Stern. Take it away. My name is Prina. I'm one of the second year PEM fellows. Um, and my research project is point of care influenza testing in the emergency department. I have no disclosures or conflicts of interest. 
So influenza types A and B are common respiratory pathogens in the pediatric population and a significant cause of morbidity and mortality. Medical literature documents that the availability of a rapid influenza test in the pediatric emergency department alters physician decision making. Reverse transcriptase PCR testing or viral culture is the gold standard test for influenza. RED at Connecticut Children's did not have a rapid influenza test available prior to the 2017-2018 respiratory season. So our PCR testing would be sent to the lab and the average turnaround time for the test was about two hours and the average length of stay for children in our emergency department with suspected influenza was over four hours. So in 2017 to 2018, a point of care test was introduced. This was a PCR-based test with good sensitivity, good specificity, and a turnaround time about, of about 15 minutes. So our purpose was to determine if the introduction of a point of care PCR-based flu test decreased the use of imaging, invasive testing, antibiotics, altered total length of ED stay, or altered antiviral administration in the ED. For our methods, we did an electronic medical record search from November to April of four years, 2014 to 15, 15 to 16, 16 to 17, and 17 to 18, and that was the year that the point of care test was introduced. Our target population was patients aged three months to 18 years on whom influenza testing was performed. So data was collected on age, sex, acuity. For acuity, we used ESI, diagnosis, antibiotic and antiviral treatment given in the ED. Um, lab testing, we specifically looked at CBC, blood culture, urinalysis, and urine culture. Imaging, we specifically looked at chest x-ray, length of stay, and disposition. So, a total of 227,269 patients were seen in the ED um, during the study period, of which and, a little over 106,000 were seen in peak flu season, that's the November to April of each of those respiratory season. Overall, 5% of patients had flu testing done, which is uh, a little over 5,000 patients. From 2014 to 2017, the three uh, preceding years prior to the point of care test, 3.2% of patients had lab flu testing, so about 2,500 patients, and in the 2017 to 2018 group, 9.6% had flu testing, which was about a little over 2,700. When we compared our demographics, we saw a slightly younger age range in the point of care flu group, 4.2 years versus five years. Um, in terms of ethnicity, there was also a higher number of Hispanic patients, and we also saw a higher percentage of patients on Medicaid. We also saw a difference in acuity with our point of care group being an average ESI of 3.5 and our lab being an average ESI of 3.1. So this specifically shows ancillary testing, chest x-rays, blood culture, CBC, and then urinalysis and urine culture. The pink bars show our uh, pre-point of care group from 2014 to 2017, and then the blue bar shows our point of care group. So for chest x-ray, we can see that previously 46% of patients had chest x-rays done compared to 34% in the point of care group. 
we see similar results for our blood culture group, 30% versus 16, and then you can kind of see similar results for CBC and urine studies. When we looked at anti-medication uh, administration in the ED, specifically antivirals and antibiotics, um, we saw that the point-of-care group had about 21% of patients received antivirals in the ED compared to previously, or only 13% did, and our antibiotic usage stayed the same, around 8%. In terms of length of stay, um, our pre-point-of-care group had a length of stay of 257 minutes, and our post-point-of-care had a length of stay of 265 minutes. So there was no significant difference in our length of stay. Um, <clears throat> we also looked at the admission rate for those that were tested, and we saw that in the pre-point-of-care pre -point period, the, um, the admission rate was 35.7%, and in the post-point-of-care period, it was 20.5%. So with the introduction of the rapid flu test, we saw an overall increase in testing. That was 9.6% versus previously 3.2%. This was expected as there was less of a barrier to testing. It was easier to get testing faster to get results. Um, we did see a decrease in ancillary testing, imaging and lab testing, and there was no significant change in length of stay. Um, we thought that this could possibly be secondary to increased testing and kind of backing up the machines. We initially only had one machine and then got two, um, but um, with the higher volume of patients that were being tested, um, we thought we could be backing up the machines. Um, and we saw no change in antibiotic um, rates in the ED. <clears throat> Some of our li limitations include there was a sicker cohort in previous respiratory seasons, so that was the ESI of 3.1 versus 3.5. This was expected since the barrier to testing was higher in previous years, so theoretically patients that appeared sicker or you were more concerned about were more likely to be tested. This could also account for some of the differences that we saw in our admission rate, the 35% versus 20%. Um, other limitations included kind of the accuracy of testing, um, practice patterns between different pr um, providers, and our discharge prescriptions were unknown, so we don't know who was discharged with antivirals and antibiotics. We just know about the administration in the ED. So benefits um, of point-of-care testing include potential cost savings, decreased testing, decreased admissions, um, decreased invasive testing, and earlier administration of antiviral medication. So in conclusion, after introduction of our point-of-care flu testing, there was a significant decrease in imaging, lab testing, and admission rate with no impact on length of stay or antibiotic use in the ED. Thank you. Questions for our speaker? Dr. Salazar. Thank you, Rita. Very nice work. Uh, one, of the, one of the slides that really was pretty interesting to me was the, the one where you showed you know, quite significant decrease in, in lab testing, including chest x rays. Mm -hmm. um, so I just want to maybe comment on that. That would be the first question why that decrease? And then the second one is have you done uh, further financial analysis on, on, on that side? I mean, if you, you know, you could show significant savings 
to the Children's Hospital and the providers of the insurance companies. I mean, this is something that, uh, and, and, and that we've seen in other settings where clinical care testing has been done. So we're looking into the um, we're looking into the financial savings right now. Um, I've gotten kind of average cost per test, um, and there is um, some financial savings, but I'm trying to compare that to the increased cost of doing all the additional testing, the 9.6% versus like the 3% that was previously done. And um, as to um, like the use of decreased um, imaging, decreased lab testing, I think it was probably as a result of, you know, having those results for your flu testing uh, back sooner. So I think if you had results saying that a patient who had, who was febrile and was coughing um, had flu, you would be less likely to go digging for other course, uh, sources of infection. Um, so having that test back in 15 minutes versus waiting two hours, you'd be more likely to do more, is my theory. Yeah, it's you know, you're saving in thousands and thousands of dollars just by having something readily available. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, that raises the question, how much were the, was the cost of each of those tests? Was it more expensive to do point of care than lab testing? It was not. The average test of, uh, the cost of the point of care testing, I think, was around $80 and um, it was $140 for the lab to run it. So it was actually cheaper than the lab to do it, but we just did significantly more of them. Ms. Jay, I don't know if you could see me. Uh, first of all, wonderful presentation. Uh, who's, who does the testing and how do you ensure proficiency? Um, so the nurses and the, so the nurses get the samples and then either the nurses or the techs do the um, test. Um, I mean, um, they, we did go through like how to get a good nasopharyngeal specimen, how to do the testing. There was a little bit of confusion in the beginning because we had both influenza cartilages and influenza and RSV. And if you don't, if, if I ordered only the flu and they run the influenza RSV, then the results don't cross over, which could also like account for some of the delay that we were having in getting results and the length of stay. So some of those tests needed to be redone. So we put up signs, we kind of went over it multiple times. You can see even a simple thing like this can be complicated. Yeah. Questions? Thank you for a beautiful presentation. I'm surprised to see no decrease in the antibiotic use, although it was only 8%. Uh, but I wondered whether you had any data on when the antibiotics were given. Were they given before the results were obtained or afterwards? I don't have that data. So I'm not really sure. It was just throughout their ED course if they were given antibiotics or not. All right, that's great. Actually, one quick comment. You know, I think that uh, that 2017-2018 flu season was probably the busiest we've ever seen, and there are a lot of other factors mitigating our length of stay. Um, so I think that it would be hard to prove that. I, I think there might be another way to prove that length of stay is affected uh, by doing a quicker test, because intuitively it would seem that that would be the case. I think your length of stay was affected by so many other things. Um, that would be hard to tease out. So we did see that um, the overall length of stay was in increased compared, uh, compared to 2014 to 2017, the length of stay overall for 2017 to 2018 was overall increased, and the patients that were tested for flu had 
were there in the ED for less time than the overall length of stay, whereas in previous years they were there for a greater time um, than the average length of stay. So there is some difference there, but I'm trying to work out with the statistician you know, what could be made of that. Thank you, Fred. Uh, a very Thank you for a very relevant uh, presentation. As a pediatrician in the outpatient community, um, can you comment on what the clinical intent is in doing the test? How do you decide who gets tested? I may have missed that in your presentation. And is there an interest in collaborating with the ER physicians in determining who is the right candidate for the test? test? So we did have a checklist um, of patients that were that should be tested based on the CDC recommendations, um, but um, we found that in the 2017 to 2018 season, there was a lot of media coverage around death and influenza. So there were a lot of patients that year coming in specifically requesting influenza testing, and I think when patients request influenza testing, we usually um, give it to them. So, you know, um, there was some, a checklist um, to kind of determine who actually needed testing, but I don't know if that was strictly adhered to just in that last respiratory season. And on behalf of Connecticut Children's and the Department of Pediatrics, I wish to thank you for your wonderful work. Thank Congratulations. Moving on to our third speaker, Dr. Joshua Goldman, who's going to talk to us about improving care of patients with sickle cell disease through the use of individualized pain plans. His mentor is Dr. Natalie Bezla. Joshua? Um, first, I want to thank everyone on the project, uh, Dr. Sampino, um, Heather, one of the Hemoc nurses who also keeps an updated database of all of our sickle cell patients, and my mentor, Dr. Bessler. And like I said, we're going to talk about the um, use of individualized pain plans to improve care of our patients here with sickle cell disease. So why it's important, so hospitalization, so vaso-occlusive crisis, both pediatric and adult, um, remain prolonged, this obviously focusing on pediatric patients. Um, many different reasons for this, but there is a big discrepancy initially in how patients are treated. So often patients either get inappropriately low doses of analgesia, which then increases both your emergency room length of stay, um, increases patient symptoms, which is, as we're trying to get patient care, kind of the most disturbing thing, and then also has a higher chance of admission. Um, and then also on the flip side, patients who tend to present to the emergency room department often might get inappropriately high doses of analgesia. Um, then you're admitted because of side effects from narcotics. And either way, you're playing catch-up once they're admitted and you lead to longer inpatient length of stays. Um, so this quality improvement project, and this is one arm of a larger quality improvement initiative with sickle cell disease, um, wanted to systematically create and update pain plans in the EHR that we hopefully get um, each tre specific treatment that each patient deserves for them and make it a streamlined process as well. Um, and the impetus for this is that we've seen that this has worked at similar centers in the past. So Children's Hospital Pittsburgh, which is similar sized, um, showed success in this approach, and then Cincinnati Children's, which is a larger institution, um, also has published literature about this approach as well. Um, so ex expected improvements from the literature and also intuitively, hoping for decreased variation in emergency department treatment, um, and also uh, chemotology clinic treatment as well for patients who present urgently that way. 
hopefully that hopeful that when patients are admitted, their admission orders are more appropriate or reflective of their appropriate level of analgesia. Um, that we're able to have our treatments concord better with national treatment guidelines for sickle cell pain. Uh, and hopefully we have decreased length of stay in the hospital as well and length of stay in the emergency department. So our population currently, which is always in flux as patients transition to adult providers, and as we get more patients identified through the state screening program, we have 243 patients with sickle cell disease, around 140 admissions a year uh, for vasoclusive crises. That's not 140 unique patients, but unique admissions because a small subset of patients does make up a relatively large proportion of admissions for pain. Um, the GMLOS that we're trying to shoot for is around three days. Uh, currently, are looking at the data from our study, our average length of stay for patients that are, that are admitted to the hospital is around five days. Um, so many impetuses both for patient care, patient quality of life, but also financially as well to lower our length of stay for patients with sickle cell disease. So this project's aim was to increase the percent of patients with sickle cell disease um, discharged from the hematology inpatient service who had a pain plan given to them from zero to 90% by January 1 of 2019. And so this was an ongoing quality improvement project that remains ongoing with multiple arms, um, using multiple PDSA cycles. And initially we focused on provider education on best practices to better um, adhere to national treatment guidelines, um, <coughs> creation of these physical pain plans in the electronic health record, and utilizing these pain plans so that they're not just there, but they're also effective. And we kind of model these, pa these uh, pain plans after our asthma inpatient plans that we hand asthmatics on discharge. We also created a best practice advisory in EPIC that um, isn't the best tool, but it's to the limit of what EPIC can do. So it should fire if a patient's being discharged and they have sickle cell disease with vasoclusive crises on their problem list and the, and the chart picks up that there's no pain plan in the system at all. Um, not the greatest because it can't pick up how current it is, but it can say if you have one or not. Um, we considered our pain plans up to date if they were created within six months of each individual patient encounter. Our final goal, as I said, was to provide updated pain plan at hospital discharge, much like our asthma, asthma treatment plans, and we capture our data using a monthly run chart using um, the appropriate statistical methods for uh, run chart analysis. This is just an example of a patient um, treatment plan, um, and so the goal is to give every patient both their daily treatment options at home and what to take for moderate, mild, moderate, severe pain, so that it not only helps us, but also helps them in the outpatient setting and then also what to give when they're in the emergency room, usually a combination of acetaminophen, ketorolac, unless they've reached their monthly limit, and then the appropriate dose of um, opioid medication based on patient weight and, the, and their tolerance. Also gives follow-up management in the ER, and then when they're admitted, um, giving the appropriate settings, especially now with uh, the literature showing that using patient-controlled analgesia and getting rid of your continuous infusion and just doing um, patient spot dosing is the most effective way of treating sickle cell pain. And then also reminding providers to continue long-acting medication for patients that are on oral extended release medications. Um, and just remembering to put in all the supplemental consultants as well that we know are beneficial for these patients like um, massage therapy, pain team consults, psychiatry if you have um, some comorbid anxiety, depression as well. So kind of progress to date, we've created a multidisciplinary team which involves residents, APRNs, nurses, um, obviously the um, providing hematologists, and also members of our pain team, um, and a variety of administrators as well to help with this project. Um, we have a new electronic pain plan in EPIC. Uh, we've done extensive pediatric resident education, which is largely one of my roles in the project. Um, there's been departmental education about um, appropriate kind of treatment practices, and we've created the best practice advisory. Many future arms that are ongoing and currently in more development, so there's going to be a pain clinical pathway somewhere down the pipe, but not there yet. 
Um, big thing we want to do is integrate this into the emergency department workflow. Um, that way, these pain plans have benefit right up front when a patient comes in and they do occlusive crisis in the ED. Um, and then making a new sickle cell progress note template, that way it's easier to accomplish the workflow of making these pain plans in the outpatient setting. Um, so looking at our results, so first we have our percent of patients with sickle cell disease who have a current pain plan at hospital discharge. We looked at this because even though it's not our specific aim of giving these patients a physical plan when they go home, it at least tells you how many patients had updated pain plans that recommended appropriate dosing for them that we could act on as providers. Um, and so you can see we have many different um, interventions that we made, including multiple presentations. So the resident team as kind of the team that should be providing a lot of these plans at hospital discharge and will be writing a lot of the admission orders, especially overnight. Um, there's been, obviously you see bumps in how many patients have this when a member of our team has been on the inpatient service, um, which is expected and Hawthorne Effect is acceptable in QI research. Um, and then also at the end, you'll see that we sat down and divvied up pain plans among members of the um, initiative and actually wrote them and that really bumped up how many patients we had. Um, and so we're at, our median's at about 80% right now, a little short of 90% but significantly increased from nothing at the beginning. And looking at our patients who physically had an updated plan given to them at hospital discharge, we're lagging behind a little bit, but we're at 53%, which is still market improvement using the same um, PDSA cycles as previously. So our results just restated there. So 80% of patients with updated pain plans, 53 receiving these pain plans at discharge. So now that we have these decent numbers, now we need to move forward and we finally have enough patients that are active that we can follow the trend. Is this making a difference in length of stay? Is in the, both the ER and inpatient, is it making a difference in patient quality of life through patient surveys? Are we getting the clinical benefits that other study, other uh, centers have shown that we expect to get here? Uh, obviously this data is preliminary, um, but it does seem to support a pain plan initiative, um, especially looking at similar QI projects at other institutions. Um, but we have a, a lot of additional work to do, including incorporating um, a clinical pathway, involving the emergency department more, and that's just uh, started within the last month, and then getting this workflow really established in the outpatient environment, because there's already enough to do um, when a patient comes in for one of those sickle cell follow-up visits as it is, and now you're adding drafting and handing the patient a pain plan at, dis at discharge from the office. So that's a whole other layer of workflow that we have to make happen a little more seamlessly. Um, limitations, it's a single institution, QI project, um, and then understanding that a small subset of the patients here with sickle cell disease do make up a relatively large cohort of our admissions for vaso-occlusive crisis. So knowing that those are probably the more complex patients who will have longer length of stay take, and just have more complex and changing pain plans as it is. Um, this, it's important to continue this because we want to keep reassessing um, our management of sickle cell pain, especially as the guidelines continue to change out what the best practices are, and it allows for rapid changes in pain management based on emerging data. Um, one paper that I forgot to include on here is um, over at Montefiore, they're using intranasal fentanyl in the emergency department to try to lower length of stay and finding good effect without, uh, with uh, tolerable side effects. But the other big ones that I like to bring up um, is that now we're seeing out of uh, Emory and then also out of the PCAR network, different variations in how much fluid that you're giving to patients. Um, so actually suggesting that giving a normal saline bolus to a well-hydrated patient might actually lengthen length of stay, worsen pain, and not be beneficial. And then even um, some centers are using hypotonic fluids to, um, and they've shown that in vitro that decreases how much the cells are physically sickly, and so that might be an approach to take it in vivo as well. So by having these continual um, QI initiatives and analysis literature, we can stay current with best practices. Uh, thank you everyone for your time. Questions?
You ask a lot of questions, Dr. Salazar. Yes, that was, that was a 